friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In Season 2, Episode 33, Sasha interviews Dr. Ed Mariano. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. It's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. I'm really excited about today's guest, but I'm also excited to tell you that I am launching a new website and a new course, and I cannot wait to show you all of the things I've kind of evolved um, as I've gone along the last couple years with Brave Enough and what it means to me and all of the different kind of parts of it. And I've really spent quite a bit of time in the last several months doing a deep dive into the vision and the mission of Brave Enough. And with that, I realized that it was time for a website redo and just kind of a, a fresh look and also reorganization of what the mission and the vision is. And so I invite you, if you don't follow becomebraveenough.com, you go there, you join the website because I have a ton of new things coming out, events, courses, online communities, new things that I really want to share with you. And if you're not part of the group, then you don't, you're going to miss out. And I don't want you to miss out. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. I'm so excited to introduce my guest. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm so excited to have a dear friend and fellow anesthesiologist, Dr. Ed Mariano on. He is a professor at Stanford. He's so many things. He is the chief of anesthesiology at the VA in Palo Alto. He has won awards for his leadership and he is an amazing regional anesthesiologist. Those of us in anesthesiology probably know him best for his multiple publications and his work um, in the acute pain arena. And many of you may follow him on social media. If you don't follow Ed, I would really encourage you to because he's such a positive voice and educator for so many of us in healthcare. I have gotten to know him because he is an amazing he for she. And I've actually met his wife and his children and they're just a really, you know, he, you can tell that Ed is somebody who walks the walk and, um, really lives what he, what he shows us on social media, which is very few people, I think in leadership today, find that balance. So I'm so honored to have you on as a guest today. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. I mean, I'm a big fan of yours as well. Um, it's hard to believe that we have followed each other for years now, and thankfully had a chance to meet in person um, just a couple of months ago, which feels like forever ago. I know. I know. <laughs> it's so true. We um, we were both speaking at a meeting in early February in Hawaii. And we had no idea how our lives would change um, due to the COVID pandemic over the next several weeks. And certainly how our job and our workflow would change every day. Um, I, I know you, we've shared, we're kind of in a, a similar group and we're facing a lot of the same um, challenges as both physicians and parents and, and uh, Americans, as many of you listening probably. So it's so true. And I think that, um, if anything, I feel like it has really forced us to try to communicate in a different way. And um, I think it's, I've been very fortunate that to have friends and colleagues like yourself um, and others uh, who I can go to for information that I find, find valuable. And I know um, sometimes that's been the most difficult part of our current state is just having 
this deluge of information and not really being able to curate it in the way that we are used to um, in our day-to-day clinical and, and personal lives. I think that's so, that's so true because it's one thing to read, you know, there's so much information coming at us right now. And it's like, I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hydrant. Like I'm trying to figure out what information I need to read, what information I don't need to read. But at the end of the day, it's nice to have a colleague that you can just call and say, okay, what are you actually doing? Like, what are you doing about this problem? Or what are you doing with this? Because we're so used to in medicine, having all the answers and having like, you know, a year of discussions before we make a decision. And we, quite frankly, we don't have that luxury of time. Now we we're having to create pathways and procedures and policies and answers to questions that we just are thinking up off on the fly. So it's so nice to have colleagues who you can call and won't, you know, shame you for asking a dumb question (laughs) or we'll just share, honestly, like we don't have an answer for that. Aren't you finding that that's, that's such a a nice thing about social media is having those connections. It does. And I think that that, um, and if anything, I think I have, I've I've been going to to Twitter to specific accounts and people whom I trust, um, you know, for that kind of information, just because, um, I mean, it's coming from all angles and I feel like I am managing it better than I did in the beginning. Um, when it was all around you, I felt like it was very difficult to separate um, in many ways like what um, what's my own personal space is versus work because everything became work. Um, from text messages from people, from um, our WhatsApp groups, from social media, um, yeah, we were getting COVID-19 all the time. And I found it difficult until I started going almost back to basics and really just looking at specific accounts that people you know, whom I knew would, would be putting out um, you know, helpful information um, and keeping things positive, which I think is also important um, because, it, it, unfortunately, this is not our, our first time being um, uh, a highly communicable respiratory illness, although this is arguably the worst thing we've seen in our community. But um, we also know that, uh, unfortunately, this probably isn't the last thing either. And so being able to really test out these communication styles and understanding how we're going to um, address communication down the road, I think is really important too. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, one of the reasons it's interesting because you and I work in different subspecialties of anesthesiology. So theoretically, we could have gone the next 20 years and never really crossed paths. But we our paths diverged, I think, because we both share similar Uh, values. And I think we exemplify those in different ways on social media, but, but we really have very similar core values when it comes to how we present our information or how we really communicate on social media. Um, you certainly are one of the most positive voices on social media, even when it comes to handling difficult topics, um, because that's what leaders are called to do. You, you know, I've watched you so eloquently present information that's factual or present questions that you have, but maintain a sense of respect and also the kind of this like assuming positive intent. And so I'm curious, like how you cultivated your kind of brand or persona on social media. And, and I'm sure there are times when you 
are frustrated or you are irritated or you are angry with an issue. And I'm curious how you go about like making sure that when you do come out and talk about an issue, you do it in such a respectful manner. Yeah, I think that it's a it's a tough it's a tough line to walk. Um, I think we we know it's important for physicians for for all um, healthcare workers you know, who are passionate about you know, their roles to be actively involved in social media. So I think that that's really the most important initial point. Um, there are the general public, the people out there, uh, someone's patient um, are looking for information, and I think it's important. That we are, that we're present and we're located where the people are. So I, I think that that's really key. So we, I think to be active on social media as a healthcare professional um, already is associated with some risk. I think that we have all, um, yeah, you know, we're all familiar with HIPAA, and I think that we've all taken our mandatory privacy training um, every year in the frequency of time, um, and so we're familiar. I think with what goes along with being in this room, um, and also having a voice uh, on in the public, in the public arena. Um, that being said, um, I also think that there are some really tough topics out there um, you know, for which um, the general public or even our colleagues, I think, have a hard time um, addressing, and, and, they're, and sometimes they get hotly debated. Uh, my own feeling is that I try to always assume positive intent on social media just as I do in my real life. Uh, when people, yeah, oftentimes, um, even sitting in a live meeting, um, can sometimes come across as um, you know, maybe hurtful or offensive, um, you know, that they are representing a, a, an opinion base. They're representing the group, uh, and maybe they're representing um, a patient patient uh, voice that is not often being heard. And I try to see through some of that um, and try to understand where that person is trying to get to because maybe there's a different way about it that would be more effective. And and oftentimes I feel like, um, you know, those people sometimes need, sometimes if they're open to it, need to see a different point of view in order to maybe readdress their strategy. Mm. Um, That's challenging. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, myself, I know um, I try to, I try to speak on social media the same way to speak to people in real life. Um, I try not to ever post anything um, you know, that it would somehow you know, be interpreted as being offensive. And I think that's why sometimes I, yeah, I'll, I'll joke around when I'm at a conference and say, you know, I'm not the fastest tweeter, um, even though I may be live tweeting things that I learned in a meeting. But it's because I sit there before I ever you know, hit tweet or before I hit reply. I always try to proofread that. Um, one, just to try to make sure I don't have any typos, but also just to see, well, is there something in my message that someone may not interpret the way I intended? Um, I understand that not everyone does that when they're on social media. And so I also try to take that into account when I'm reading people's messages and not jump to responding right away um, out of emotion, but try to digest it and see if I can come up with something that's maybe a little bit more helpful. Yeah, I I like that. I think you and I have a similar approach that way. I often, um, I'm not the fastest tweeter. And many times um, I've actually received feedback from, you know, people who are like, 
why didn't you comment on this issue? Or we really, we really need you to comment on this issue. And I'm like, I'm still thinking about it. Like, you know, (laughs) I, like, I remember when the, um, when the, UCLM or what, what, one of the tests came out that they were going to just do make pass fail. I can't remember which step and everybody was tweeting about it within like minutes. And I'm like, how can you are already have all these formulated opinions? I got to like, I'm such a researcher. And so many people were like, we're waiting for you to weigh in. And I'm like, I can't weigh in in the next hour. I have to like, think about this, read about it, talk to my, you know, content experts before I formulate an opinion. That's just me personally. And Certainly, I think there's always times where when we talk about things that aren't often talked about or aren't pleasant topics, and some of those are real topics that we need to talk about, like, you know, vulnerable populations or equity, um, diversity and inclusion, people automatically kind of get defensive or afraid. And I think that I, I know that it's, it's number one, I think two things can be true at the same time. Number one, we have to talk about that. We have to tweet about it. We have to put that information out there. It's so important to be part of the conversation. But the other thing that can be true is that also you have to be so careful how you deliver those messages because it is so hard to not... I, alienate a group. And what we want to do is, you know, you want to like foster communication. You want to foster people to think and be a a thought leader, but it's so easy to just be like, I'm not going to tweet about that because I don't want to offend somebody. Cause it's true. You could offend somebody. And I, I love the way that you are always kind of, you bring a different element. I mean, certainly when you post about gender equity, let's say you're going to post completely different than what I'm going to post, but your approach to it always makes me think of things and not get ultimately or, you know, instantly defensive about it. And so I always say to people like, you know, my hope is that I bring a different perspective, but I bring one that's respectful and that invites people to the table. Cause I think it's really easy when you see something that's not right, or you see something that's not fair to kind of jump on this bandwagon of blame and shame and anger. But I think that just alienates people from the table and it doesn't, you know, pull people in to talk about them. Yeah, you're, I mean, hundred percent true. And I think that you, we get so much information from hearing those points of view. We may not agree with them. We may not like the way they're delivered necessarily. Um, but that opinion may represent a subset of opinion um, that we otherwise wouldn't have heard. And so I think, I think that's really key, is, is to try to um, not reflectively get offended. And, and, and I'm with you. I think that sometimes you know, there are these um, issues that emerge, and there's pressure to try to, to, to use our voices to try to either... Um, refute right away or amplify right away. Um, but, but I think I'm with you. I, I feel like I need a little bit of time sometimes to, to just digest what's happening and think about the different, the different ways it ties into so much, um, of the way that we practice in that case with the test course and with the educate. Um, I don't always have an opinion right away. Um, and I think that, um, it's, I, sometimes I feel like it's more harmful to, um, to try to express, um, an idea that is not completely based yet, um, before I've had a chance to, to really frame it in a way that I 
feel like um, helpful for the conversation. Mm, I love that. So I want to ask you, you know, there's a lot of uh, men in medicine that are leaders that support women in medicine or support, you know, kind of they'll, they'll say to me all the time, like kind of behind the scenes, like I support women. I'm, I really want to help women. I, I want to know how to do it. And, but they may not be seen as a sponsor of women, or they may not have such a vocal voice about it. Um, certainly there are several that do, and you are one of them. You're someone who has kind of emerged as, um, an amplifier of the work that women are doing. So you often retweet, uh, work that women do in the academic space or publicly speaking. Um, I see you all often, um, uh, and you invite women to speak, you invite women to participate in different things. And I've heard that about you from people that are also in your subspecialty society that like, that's who you really are. I'm curious, like what, what kind of drew you to that work and what drew you to be kind of shine a light on gender equity in medicine? I mean, I think that I have, um, I mean, I try to be uh, true to who I am first. And, and I think that as, um, I mean, I'm a first generation American and, and my parents immigrated here from Philippines. And I think going through um, the school system here, um, growing up in um, as a as a minority, um, yeah, living in New Jersey, when we moved out to uh, Sonoma County in California, um, is that I, I was always aware. Although I was always accepted, but I was always aware that there were there were not always people who looked at like me um, in my environment. And I think that that. For that reason, I feel like I, I empathize with underrepresented groups in general, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I, I can't I can't honestly say that it's a it's a conscious effort on my part, uh, at least initially, um, to try to really seek out and and improve that representation. I think it has become um, in my um, a conscious decision at the time, but initially I think it really came from a, it came from a, a good place. I mean, a, a genuine place in my heart to really try to identify where, where can I find talent? Where can I help really uh, smart, engaged, motivated people with great ideas get to where they need to go. Um, and, and I feel like that, um, that has never, I've never regretted that. And I feel like it's always paid off much more than I would have ever expected. Um, every time that I meet a talented person, um, and, and, and put her in a role in which her talents are best suited to that particular role, um, what I end up seeing that person achieve is always much greater than what I ever could have anticipated. And I think it, it takes a lot. Um, I mean, locally, within leadership roles that I've had um, at the hospital level or at the school level, um, it means really getting to know people. And I think that they've gotten involved in society um, and we're meeting people from other locations and other departments um, in different parts of the country or even other, in other countries, um, it really takes more effort to try to understand and really get to know what each person is really passionate about. Um, but I think that communication has improved, um, especially with you know, social media and email and you know, other ways to collaborate. Um, and whenever an opportunity comes up, um, to, you know, say, like someone's 
we can sort of uh, a, a talented uh, position to interview um, or is looking for nominations and for awards or committees. Um, I always uh, purposely try to uh, look at my you know, my network you know, of people um, and try to identify people with great talent. And, um, and you know what? I think um, by being open-minded, I feel like that, that network has really expanded. Um, and women make a huge part of that network, as do... Um, yeah, you know, some of my other friends and family have been my board. Um, I think I think it's taken something that makes it more subconscious in the past for me, and just try to make it conscious. Um, and I think others can do that too. I love that. And and it doesn't have to be like this huge thing that to start, right? I I, I think that, right. you know, I talk to men all the time after I speak on these things at conferences that will approach me and say like, I really want to help women in my department. I just, I don't know how. And that's why I always encourage, you know, more than one, like just make sure wherever you are and there's decisions being made that, that there's a woman around the table and there's more than one woman around the table or there's a minority who is, has support and is, feels included and whose voice feels that, that he or she can be heard. And, and it helps to have more than one because it's hard to be the only minority. It's hard to be the only woman. It has, it's hard to be the only marginalized person around a table. And so I, I think that it can be just simple things and, but it does take a conscious effort, you know, because even myself, I find myself, you know, when I'm picking speakers for something, I've heard more men speak. So I have more men that I know that can speak on certain topics. And I have to tell myself often like, okay, you've just put down, put together a panel and you just picked four men or you just picked one woman and three men, but there's probably a woman that could speak on one of these topics and it takes energy and it may take a little innovation and creativity to kind of seek out that expert. But I love that, um, that it can be something that small and tangible that can actually change the way that we see leaders and change the way that we accept leaders. Um, and certainly, you know, you being a leader in your health system, I'm sure comes with challenges. Do you have a, like, do you have a vision or a mission statement or do you have a kind of a style of leadership that you have embraced as you've kind of risen through your career and, and, and you lead so many people in the perioperative space? Do you have like a favorite saying or a favorite style of leadership that you identify with? And I think that, um, I don't know if I'd call it a style, but I know um, people have heard me say this before, um, but I am, um, I am basically a chief cheerleader. I am the <laughs> biggest fan of people. I am a huge fan of people. And I think uh, the, uh, one of the things that, um, and, I, and I feel like, I feel like so many people in leadership should be this way because we are surrounded by talented people all over the place. Um, and and we can't ever be threatened by other people's success. If anything, it should be inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are great ideas that we have. Sometimes we share these great ideas um, that sometimes just don't work in some places, but they do work in other places. And when people are able to do those things and overcome uh, the obstacles locally, you know, to, to make changes in their environment, to change clinical practice, to advance science, um, to push the boundaries of education, um, we should be celebrating those things. And so, so I feel like my style is, is chief cheerleader. I love to find out what gets people fired up. 
in what they do. And, and part of this really comes from the fact that, um, I mean, I've, I've looked at my own balance sheet, and I remember like at our first group retreat here, the most of my VA columns of these, we looked at, well, how many hours are there in a week, right? And so, you know, that's not difficult math. But then if you were to subtract out the hours that you're sleeping and you only focus on the awake hours, how many or how many and what percent of those hours do you actually spend with your people at work versus your people at home? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's a sad imbalance to some degree. But I would actually take it the opposite and say, you know what? The fact that you spend so much of your waking hours you know, with people at work means that the bat is that is truly that really should be a primary network for you. And that is the work family. Um, that's where you get a lot of inspiration and that's where people keep you excited and get you going. And you know what? When you can make the most of that time that you're spending at work as opposed to looking at the clock constantly waiting to get off so that we can leave and go and do something that you really enjoy. If you can actually find joy in your work that is the thing, and and those of us in medicine, I think like, many of us still agree that this is a calling. So, you know, by being able to feel that and feel fulfilled, um, I feel like you bring a better a better version of yourself home. Yes. Right? And so, I've tried to really hard to make sure that the people within my work um, that are in my group uh, here and uh, within uh, VA anesthesiology practice. Um, and in my previous practice in San Diego, I always felt very strongly that um, you know, I need to know what it is that people are passionate about at work because if they are fulfilling that passion at work, then they are just better versions of themselves and they're not here. Um, and so I tried to figure that out. And I think matching those people to things that exist and maybe, well, maybe things that don't yet exist and seeing those develop. You know, we've, we've had a couple innovations in our clinical practice, like surgical home and our deep pain service, and um, you know, now moving, because of the current pandemic, um, into more telehealth. I mean, trying to match people with some big passions um, it has created leadership opportunities for them to And so I do feel like it can, it can become an organic process if leaders are more willing to really tap into the talent they have on and listen, you really have to listen, and you have to you have to be a good cheerleader because that's what it's going to take to place these people into leadership roles, you know, where they can really fulfill some of those passions. I love that. I love the, the the when you talk about joy at work because I've thought the same thing when you know you have to, when you're on teams and you have certain surgeons you work with, you know, I'm, I used, I know when I first started out and there would be conflict between myself and a surgeon, I would just like dread those days or I would have such anxiety going into those OR days because they could be 12 hour to 24 hour days that I'm spending with someone who I don't really mesh with. And over the years, I've learned how important it is to have good relationships with the person that I'm standing like two feet away from for hours upon hours. Right. And like, I'm, I'm sometimes I spend more time with the surgeons as I do with Lance, you know, in a week. And so I'm, I'm always telling myself like now, I, I mean, I will do anything to make sure that I have a good relationship with whoever I'm working with that day and that we have fun because man, if you don't have that, like it's a, it's a long, long, arduous <laughs> career. And certainly if you don't have time, if you don't have your, you know, your passion project or your, or that thing that really ignites you. So, you know, I think many of us think of our 
our work, either clinically or non-clinically. But to me, I got to have peace and harmony and fun with the people that I'm working with clinically on my clinical days. But I also need to have passion and feel like I have some control over what I'm doing on my non-clinical time. Because whether you are working in your office on something or you're leading a team or you're working on a project or whether you're working in a 24 hour transplant, you have to be able to enjoy that. Right. Like you, you, like you said, we spend so much time at work and, and I mean, I'm not naive. I know that, you know, you're not going to like gel with every single person that you work with, but I think it's really important to find those relationships and at least attempt to work towards a positive, you know, um, because, it really does affect how, who you are when you come home after spending all day with said surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's true. And it, it's just, I mean, you have, you have to be in it. Right. And I think that, um, you know, we're, as anesthesiologists, I think that our, our roles are uh, unique within the health system. And, you know, I mean, our patients and, um, you know, I, I say this now and again, and just that they are the most vulnerable in the hospital as, they can't speak for themselves. They can't advocate for themselves. And so it's so important for us to be our patient's voices. And sometimes, I mean, I, I also am not naive. I realize that, our, that we're not always going to have the best relationships with every surgeon that we work with. But at the same time, you know, we, we do have common goals and we do share uh, the, the common interests. In, in our patients having the best outcomes, and, and I think that we can we can use that commonality um, to at least to at least work well together um, for the sake of the patient. And and I think that that's, that's an interesting role that we have I think, as anesthesiologists, and that's forced us to be um, in many ways um, they're very good at negotiating um, and sometimes dealing with difficult personalities. I agree. I think it's funny because I always tell people like anesthesiologists, we don't get to fight in a chart. <laughs> like, like we don't get to be, we don't get to disagree with our colleagues in a chart. We have to do it face to face. So like you have to learn how to have like confrontation. Like there's, you have to learn how to have crucial conversations because you're also working in a, in a fishbowl. Like you're in a very stressful environment and not only are you having like a serious conversation, but you typically have like three or four people watching you have this difficult conversation, you know? And so I'm like, we don't get to, you know, write like give more fluid in a chart. We have to say it. I'm giving more fluid and I disagree with you like to the face of the person. So it's, it's funny because, you know, obviously our patients are anesthetized. They, most of the time they're, they're not awake and they're not listening to us. Um, and they don't realize that that's a very common thing that we have these discussions with our surgeons. But so, I, I'm just so glad that you came on the show. I think it's, it's so important that I love bringing on voices of people that are work in different areas than myself and have different perspectives. And I, I also love that you are a father to like the cutest people ever, um, who, and you're constantly, you and Carrie are constantly taking them like on all these amazing trips. So, um, tell us just a little bit about, how you hand, like how you always bring your boys on trips with you, work trips. I just love that. <laughs> so, um, and so my, the boys, so they call them daddy trips. And <laughs> it started out when, um, so I, I was born in New Jersey and grew up there um, for the first several years of my life. And I remember um, one of the road trips we would 
uh, we would go through, we would actually drive to Pennsylvania to go to Hershey Park. And one of the things that um, really made me think about this first, because um, I got invited to go to Penn State Hershey to be visiting professors. And my oldest son was only two at the time. Um, but I thought, well, how do I go to Hershey, Pennsylvania by myself? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, like, this is where we used to go as a family. And so um, my, so, so I, you know, there's always a first, right? Yeah. And um, I, I decided that this would be the first time I would just ask. And, and it was interesting because, I mean, having hosted visiting professors at Stanford and the EPSD, I never thought to ask the speaker if he or she wanted to bring a family member. Never. Never really thought about it. Um, but I asked. I asked, you know, is it okay if I bring my son with me? That's because I would like to spend an extra couple of days at Hershey and go to Park. And they thought, great. And then um, it was interesting because they asked, well, so... Um, you know, uh, what is he going to do when you're speaking? And um, will he just hang out at the Hershey Lodge, you know, while you're doing this professorship? And, and so, so I had to explain that, well, he's four. And so, yeah. <laughs> since he's four, um, yeah, he, he's just going to be with me. And, um, and they were fantastic. I give them a lot of credit. Um, <laughs> so they, um, they were open-minded and they said, okay, well, you know, we can make sure that there's, Get friendly food. Um, they will be a, be a great host. Um, their residents go around. I'm sure that people would love to, um, you know, to sit with them and, and keep them keep them busy and entertained, you know, while you're doing your thing. And what's interesting was, um, I mean, he was he was great. I mean, he's now he's been traveling with us since he was a little, um, and he's an easy traveler anyway. Um, but he was three years old. He flew across the country and. He did. He attended everything. He went to the, uh, the, the, the journal club. He was a visiting professor at dinner. <laughs> uh, he got up early like a champ, even though he had a three-hour time difference. He was <laughs> and we had the best time ever. Um, and just doing the most part, but also doing a lot of fun stuff. Um, and I think that uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. It, everything didn't go perfectly smoothly the whole time. And I remember, like, it um, during my grand round talk, um, you know, he had a, a little snap with like his snack cup and <laughs> I love <laughs> it. Was lucky. I um, love it. But, um, you know what? I, 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 I took a pause, um, you know, and I, the department, uh, the chair, you know, Dr. Um, Dr. Metz was, um, you know, he was a very gracious place and everyone just thought, you know what? That's just what happens. I mean, that's just, that is who we are. I mean, yeah. yes, you know, we're, you know, we're academic, you know, with physicians, we're, you know, doing um, the work that we're, we, we want to share. But, um, but you know, we're also parents and we have spouses. And um, why not, if you're going to invite a person you know, to come and visit you, why not let them be who they are? And it just seemed, it seemed more like one of those, like, aha moments. But you know what? This is okay, right? And so... Um, and so now, since then, I mean, I think he's just come with me. My oldest is come with me twenty times. I think his uh, middle son has come with me a couple of times. I took uh, our youngest because, well, because Luke was four. Uh, now the household rules that you have to be four years old in order to actually go on a date, so, um, which means you know, the minimum age to be this is four. four. Um, and so our youngest has gone down to the just straight four. <laughs> um, 
it, now it's the same. And and now I actually make it a point to ask when I invite the successes um, um, when I'm the host, you know, whether they want to bring me to um, because I think that it, it opens the door to really getting some great people um, to come and visit our department if we let them be themselves. I love that. And I love, I've done the similar thing when I went to New York for uh, visiting professor, I asked NYU and they were so gracious and let my son come. And I just recently had a sit down with our, all of our kids and said, you know, I'm going to start taking you guys on, on more trips with me. And it's not going to be everybody. It's just going to probably be one person. So I had to kind of like explain that to the kids, because I think when you have more than one kid, they get their feelings hurt or they get like, this isn't fair. And they start rationing and they start bargaining and you're like, okay, so, um, but I love that. And I think it's so true because it is who we are. And, and, you know, I'm sure that if anything, like you probably, you role modeled that for all the faculty there and the residents and the trainees and how awesome it is that for them to see that, like you, you weren't trying to hide who you are, but you're embracing that two things can be true at once. You can be an amazing dad and a, a father who brings their kid on a, on a work trip, but you can also be this, you know, content expert in regional anesthesia and in the opioid crisis and everything else you do academically and not detract from that. And so I love that. I think it's so empowering. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I know that, um, things are so busy right now and crazy where we are in the middle of this pandemic. And so it means so much that you took the time out to come on the show. And I'm just so thankful for your friendship. I'm so grateful to be on the show. And as you know, I am a big fan of yours too. So, um, so I will, I also am a big cheerleader. I know you have a big cheerleading group. <laughs> I, prob- I probably will have to run for election to be the president of your fan club. Um, but I, I'm really, I'm really grateful. I think that your, your voice is an important one. Um, I know you inspire so many, um, with people you don't even know, um, including myself. Um, it's just, I think it's important to, to be real and to let people know, um, that it's okay to, to find your voice, uh, and also to help other people. And I think you do that so well. Um, I just want to thank you for all you do. Well, thanks, Ed. And I hope if you're listening today, we gave you some encouragement and we gave you some laughter and we gave you some things to think about. And as always, live brave. This has been an HSG production.